You sending the whoop? Shit, that's all you had to say. Get away from her, you bitch. Banana. Fortune and glory, kid. Fortune and glory. You're not even interesting enough to make me sick. It's only an island if you look at it from the water. I'm your density. You think I'm gorgeous? You want to kiss me? Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Sending the Wolf. My name is Clark Wolf. It's nice to see you. Thank you for joining me. If this is your first time, welcome. You're in for a treat. And if you are returning, thank you so much for being here. Um, I'm really excited about today's episode. Today, I am welcoming a good, good friend of mine, Mr. Mark Bernardin. He is one half of Fat Man on Batman with Kevin Smith, and he is a writer on uh, Hulu's series Castle Rock, which I believe should be coming out sometime very soon hopefully in 2018. Um, And uh, he chose for his movie today to talk about The Terminator. So The Terminator, I feel like, is a movie that you and I probably all feel like we know, even if we haven't watched it uh, that regularly, even if we've seen it once, if we've seen it a handful of times. It's so ingrained in pop culture. James Cameron and uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger are so ingrained in pop culture that I feel like you know this movie even if you uh, haven't really watched it that recently. And it was really fun for me to go back and revisit the film having uh, only, I'd say, I mean, look, of course I've seen The Terminator and of course I've seen Terminator 2 um, and the various sequels, but this was not a part of my upbringing as a kid uh, like you might imagine. And so revisiting this movie with the purpose of paying attention and taking notes and sort of looking at it as an, an with an analytical eye um, was something that I was really excited to do. Um, so with that being said, Mark chose this film. And as we get into in the conversation, I admittedly was a little bit surprised um, just because I, you know, I know Mark pretty well and I certainly wasn't expecting him to to go for this one, but he did. Um, so, so we get into a lot of different things in this conversation. You know, we get into the idea of James Cameron and, you know, we all know him now as this big blockbuster director who has more money than God and is inventing new technologies all over the place. And all of that's true. Um, but there was a time where he was a new filmmaker just looking to get his shot. And, uh, you know, the Terminator is this, for all intents and purposes, kind of small-ish um exploitation film that he wrote with Gail Ann Hurd, um, but, and, and was sort of like this little sleeper hit. Um, and, and of course became a pop culture phenomenon. And of course, by the time Terminator two came around, you know, almost a decade later, uh, the technology had changed and evolved and, and it was such that, you know, this, and Arnold Schwarzenegger, of course, had become this insane action, uh, superhero or superstar rather. Um, and, and, 
so, um, you know, the Terminator 2 obviously took things to a new level. Uh, and uh, But the Terminator is where it started, where all of it started. Um, additionally, you know, this is a movie that uh, we all know that James Cameron loves his technology. He's been responsible for, you know, innovation within technology of movie making um, throughout his whole career. But, you know, in a lot of ways, looking back from at this movie from 1984, you're seeing um, you're seeing a lot of really interesting concepts around artificial intelligence and technology and where we find ourselves here at the end of 2017, where technology is such a big part of our lives. And not only that, something that we get into a little bit later in the conversation is the idea that, you know, is technology moving too fast? And are the people who are creating this um, technology, do they have our best interest at heart? Is anybody essentially being the grown-up behind the wheel? Um, uh, I'm not so sure. Uh, We also get into the ideas of uh, this movie has so many memorable quotes, and yet (laughs) the one that ends up on the AFI list, I'll Be Back, is is rather silly when you think about it. Uh, But I'm going to stop rambling. Um, Before we get into the full episode, I just want to say thank you to the Patreon subscribers uh, and contributors. If you are contributing to the Patreon, you are helping me out. We recently reached... um reached a number that allows me to pay uh, my my team. And so that's amazing. So thank you for making that happen. That is a huge, huge help. Um, and speaking of my team, the wonderful theme that you heard at the beginning of this episode, the Sending the Wolf theme, was composed by Sean Keller. And you can find him at underscore Sean, S-E-A-N Keller on Twitter if you want him to compose for you, which I highly recommend. Uh, and this episode was mixed and sound engineered by Folsom Keller. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this episode and this conversation between Mark Bernardin and myself talking about James Cameron's The Terminator. Like you've done this before. Once or the twice. <laughs> um, all right. So let's just dive in. How okay. about? Um, and I'm going to record this on my iPhone just in case. Yeah, because I have heard plenty of podcasts where they're like, hey, our master recording didn't work, but we have it on an <laughs> iPhone. And I'm like, well, okay. Um, so, Mr. Mark Bernardin. Hey. Hey. What? Hey, thank you for being here in my apartment. <laughs> in your fabulous podcast studio in, in North Hollywood, California. Exactly, <laughs> a.k.a. my kitchen table. And uh, and braving the, the fierce allergy beastie that is Rufus the dog. I am so far keeping it at bay, but I make no promises for the next hour. Fair enough. <laughs> and for the audience, yes. If you hear, if you hear sniffles, that's... that's yeah, sniffles that's, and sneezing. This and, is your disclaimer. And wheezing and cardiac arrest. All of those well, things. Let's hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> we don't get that far? Yeah, well, mm. I fingers crossed. I don't want to... We need to keep you alive and well. Fingers um, because you have a lot of amazing things on the horizon. Real fast, can can we just, before we get into our topic du jour, mm-hmm. um, it, not only are you one half of Ooh. Fat Man on Batman yes. with Kevin Smith, uh, but you're one of the writers on the upcoming Castle Rock. I totally am. Which is so cool. It's nuts. It's bananas. It's full of bananas and nuts. And if you have banana and or nuts, allergies it's a bad show for you Boo. but yeah that was super fun it was super fun i spent 
the better part of the year, actually, in, in that room working on stories to make people tingle, which also sounds kind of weird. I'm sorry, <laughs> Mom. I'm not that kind of writer, except for You money. are now. <laughs> Depends on what the money yeah, is. Yeah, exactly. How much are you paying? Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, it was fantastic to, to kind of get to dissect and explore and figure out what makes Stephen King Stephen King and then tell an original story within that sort of world like a, a song in the key of king mm-hmm. is kind of what what we're calling it it's not a cover of a well-known thing but it absolutely feels like it's stephen king i love that that's yeah. really cool i like Wee. that a lot and and it's funny because um it's especially for the movie that you picked by the way because <laughs> i would consider a lot of people argue that the terminator is mostly a horror movie um it was some science fiction elements thrown in and mm-hmm. then terminator 2 is like a straight action sci movie. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the the first one, it's so low budget. Mm-hmm. And especially in the early 80s, because this came out in 84, um, like low budget horror was what was working. And I'm, I'm sure that James Cameron coming out of, the, out of the Roger Corman school of film was like, hey, all right, if I make a movie that has these elements that I know that at the very least we can sell as a straight to video movie. We've got, you know, a pretty girl. We've got two guys. One of them's a killer. And there's going to be a little bit of sex, a whole lot of violence. And then maybe there could be robots at the end of it. We'll see if we can pull it off. (laughs) But that's a pretty solid sell for a movie in the 80s. You know, like you don't have to stretch too far to get an audience for that. Well, no, certainly not. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Did no, I interrupt please. you? No. Well, I was just going to say that, you know, as I was re-watching the movie today, because I've I've actually heard uh, Gail Ann Hurd and um, James Cameron talk about this movie. Mm. They did a Q&A about it at The Egyptian a few years ago. And, um, you know, and they, the, just the, the way that they were scrappily talking about it is just <laughs> so amusing considering who they have become yeah. and considering what the Terminator franchise has become. But um, when I was rewatching it, I was struck how it was like, I was like, wow, this is basically John Carpenter's Halloween, but with, you know, a robot Mm -hmm. instead of a shape, right? (laughs) Or like a supernatural force of nature known as the shape. And then you have this time traveling robot, essentially. Mm -hmm. But it's, it was kind of fun to look at it that way. Um, I always think of this one in relation to something like Halloween, and then I think of it also in relation to something like Alien and Aliens. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but it was fun also to think about, like you know, like I could see. So the way that it starts out and is credited, the writing credits, mm-hmm. it says um, written by James Cameron with Gail Ann Hurt. Yeah. And uh, what's funny about that to me is I was thinking a lot about John Carpenter and Deborah Hill mm-hmm. writing something like. Halloween. And, you know, I mean, obviously, like Deborah Hill worked with him on a lot of different things, but um, I know that she was very, had a very much a, a big hand in like helping with the girl stuff in Halloween. <laughs> and and when I was watching the scene where, um, where uh, Linda Hamilton and her best friend are getting ready to go out, <laughs> we're going to the club, and like all this stuff. And I was just like, oh my God, this is such girl stuff, or like the stuff at the diner. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I, is amazing. I think that it's also, and I've always felt that this movie was, to me, less horror and even less sci-fi than romance. Like, I think that this is this is an incredibly romantic movie. Yes. It is It is the, the depths of sacrifice that one guy will do for a woman that he loves but has never met. And what is he willing to give up? He's willing to give up everything for just a minute to, to mm-hmm. shake Sarah Connor's hand. And I've always been kind of struck by that, that 
at its core, the movie is a love story. Mm-hmm. It's a love story that happens to have it's kind of serial killer tropes and happens to have science fiction elements and happens to have time travel that you never actually really see, and that's one of my favorite parts mm-hmm. of it. But it's it's a love story about these two people who, across the gulf of time, finally manage to find each other for a heartbeat until bad shit happens because it's a movie. Bad shit's going to happen. Yeah, it's funny, too, because I I really was struck by the love story as well in this movie. And I think that that, in a lot of ways, is, um, you know, I think the two actors need to be credited because, you know, what I was thinking was it feels so much like a natural progression, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I buy the fact that these two just met and their relationship as it grows and unfolds throughout the timeline of the film. And those actors... I mean, I don't know for sure. I wasn't on set, but feeling like they um, they were probably shooting out of sequence. Like the progression mm-hmm. of the emotion is really consistent when I was rewatching it, and I was almost I was very impressed by that. Yeah, I mean, and and, and you you buy a romance in this context because it's so much about pressure and extenuating circumstances. It's the the we are. We are living something that nobody else lives. Everything is heightened. Everything is technicolor. Everything is on fire all the time. I see what like the kerosene that that throws on mutual attraction. That if you give it like a year, the slow burn of like, we went a couple of dates, we went for pizza, <laughs> bullshit. You didn't call me back. You left a message on my answering machine, and blah blah blah. But no, there's a six foot two Austrian robot chasing you. I see how that accelerates everything. And and you're right; those actors absolutely give you all of the shades of that romance without sacrificing the oh we're under pressure, oh we're under threat at all times. It feels super. Sometimes when you watch movies where there are high stakes and there's also supposed to be a love story, <laughs> it feels so goofy. Like I like, and I don't feel this way about the Terminator. But but when I was rewatching it, I was kind of like, man, there are so many movies where it's like, oh, but we're falling in love, and I'm like, what? When do you have time to do that? The, no, you're not. The world is ending. Stop <laughs> it. But but this for some reason, like they really pull it off. And um, but I want to just ask you specifically. Because I have to, uh, the you know the guest always gets to pick the movie that we talk about, mm-hmm. and um, I was really surprised. This is the one you chose. Really, I really was. Maybe because I do think of it as a horror movie um, or an exploitation movie, if nothing yeah, else. Totally. But and I know you're not a quote unquote horror <laughs> guy, so I was kind of like, a big wimp. <laughs> well, per mm. per your own ad- your admission, yes. I I can neither <laughs> confirm or deny. Um, I um, oh, did you ever did you see it? Nope. Oh. Because <laughs> I'm the worst. See, I was going to say, um, for our listeners, I told Mark that I would see it for a fourth or fifth time if he would, if he wanted to yeah, go. Yeah, and, I, I and didn't. didn't. No, no. No, take, no bites. It, it'll be on video soon enough. It, I can watch it on my phone. It <laughs> will be contained and yeah. tiny. <laughs> you're small. Look, you, you're scary all the way over there. You can't rip my arm off. You're teeny. <laughs> you can put it in my pocket. <laughs> um, well, so, but but just out of curiosity, like, why why was out of, the, granted, there's a huge list, but why was this the one that you chose? This, I, I remember watching this movie. I didn't see it quite when it came out. Um, I probably caught it in like 85 or so. When I was like 14 years old. And the, I have a love for this movie because A, it was my introduction to Los Angeles. Mm. This was the first time I'd actually seen and registered Los Angeles on screen. And and like Die Hard would later be the thing. And like, there's yeah. a giant Nakatomi Plaza when I would first come to LA and you see the Nakatomi, you see the Fox <laughs> Towers, the movies are real. But- the LA of it all, the low budgetness of it all, like as a as a burgeoning filmmaker, to be able to look at this movie as as you could look at, 
Evil Dead or Halloween or 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 Hardware or any of these other like kind of low budget grindhousey movies and take it apart and see why it works. And so much of why this movie works is it's in the script. It's in the the here's the lens through which I'm going to tell you this story that with a different lens could be huge. Uh-huh. It could be Terminator 2, which in many ways is a remake in yeah. a way of Terminator 1. But the let's bring it down. Like how much do I absolutely have to show you? And what can I afford to show you to sell you on this story? And how does the script answer the questions the audience already has before they ask them? Mm-hmm. You know, and it does that a lot where 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 Kyle Reese, played by Michael Bean, will be like interrogated by the cops and he'll be trying to explain the science of time travel and he doesn't know. Right. And that's how the movie gets away with it. It's like the one person who has the first-hand information can't explain it because he's a soldier. Like, he's not a science guy. He's not going to tell you how Einstein, Rosen, Bridges work or whatever. Right. And so the movie anticipates the audience's questions and disarms them. You know, the, the filmmaking is so ingenious. Like, I remember seeing a, a, a behind-the-scenes story in Cinefix magazine talking about the making of, of Terminator. And they were talking about the scene where where Arnold is the as the T one thousand punches through the window. Mm-hmm. He's riding on top of a car, and Kyle Reese and Sarah Connor are inside it. And he hops on the hood and he punches through the, the window to grab her jacket. And they were talking about how they did that shot. It's like, well, God, we can't put Arnold Schwarzenegger on a car that's doing like thirty miles an hour. But then we've got to have this piston rig to to push the, the, his hand through. And how are we going to do this in a moving car? And I think uh, I'm going to credit it to Cameron because why not? But he said, well, okay, instead of moving the car, let's paint a, a kind of big wooden panel behind it, paint it like bricks, and just move the panel. Mm-hmm. The panel moving will make it look like the car is moving, and that way we can do all of this stuff without having, like, that kind of, oh, duh. You know, if you've got $30 million, you put a rig on a car, and you do it on a processed truck, and you make that happen. Without that money, you just, you're forced to think of things that nobody would think of. You're forced to solve problems in ways that ultimately make that movie somewhat impenetrable to time. You know, like there's nothing in that movie that looks dated. Eh. Mm-hmm. Here and there, there's like a rear projection that's wonky. Yeah. And there's a little bit of, of, of stop motion that's a little bit hinky. But for a 35-year-old movie to hold up as well as it does, it's because the script is so tight. Yeah. And as a writer, that's always kind of what I respond to. Did you see it in the theater? Uh, not originally. Okay. First time I saw it was on video. Okay. On VHS when I worked at a video store, <laughs> at like 15 years old and sophomore year of high school. But I've since seen it on the big screen like a couple of times. And even still, like that stuff still holds up because when you're doing it for real, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like it, the, the the technology, the problems with the technology were not that it doesn't look real. Right. You know, unlike early CG or even sometimes modern CG, mm-hmm. just you can tell. Like, yeah, they're not really there. They're not on that hill. That's all CG back, whatever that is. Yeah. But this, it's, no, they built a robot. And half of this is just a, a, a giant armature standing on a dude's shoulders pretending to be walking. The the Stan Winston of it all is like so impressive. Yeah. There's the shot towards the end where the um where he's sort of rising up out of the heap of metal with mm-hmm. the flames behind him and it is so like 
it's a still a really awesome shot. Even totally. even though James Cameron has sunk the Titanic and created <laughs> worlds and like all of these things, like to me, it was a very striking visual moment of like, oh shit, yeah. <laughs> you know, the danger and and but but like you said, because probably in a lot of ways, because it's tangible. Yeah, and I, and he's said on numerous occasions that that was the image that drove him to make that movie was a robot rising from fire. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And from there he spins the script. From there he builds a career. Ultimately, is based on that single image, and and it's haunting and it's resonant. And you can tell the entire movie is pressing down to that point where it reveals itself to you. And it's born in fire. And it's awesome and shiny and chrome and evil and wonderful. And you can tell it that's that's it, that's what inspiration looks like. That's what. Oh shit! I I'm gonna make a movie just to get to the point where we see this image. Mm-hmm. Do you think, um, like, I, I wonder, too, because, you know, so when I was re-watching this one, especially thinking, and, and granted, I don't really, the reason that I use, as a fan and as, a, like, a movie person, use the term genre is because I feel like it, you know, I'm not super interested in classifying something as horror or science fiction or fantasy or thriller or whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it because, honestly, a lot of times they all have a lot combined into one. Mm. Um so, but when I think about it through a genre lens, or I think about it through the Halloween lens, or or you know the stalker essentially killer, mm-hmm. um, you know the the term final girl comes up a lot. Mm-hmm. But what I think is interesting, and I'd be curious to get your thoughts, is I was watching it thinking I think that this is like less of a final girl situation and more of a reluctant hero situation. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like like Sarah Connor goes through that, you know, for lack of a better comparison. Ripley transformation where it's like, well, I don't want to die. And so it's not about <laughs> like, you know, it, but and ultimately rises to the occasion and is changed by the end of it. But she is the reluctant hero as opposed to the girl who manages to get away. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a chosen one story more mm-hmm. than it's a final girl story. Right. And it's also the 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 refusing to heed the call story. You know, mm-hmm. where she just takes every ch- every opportunity to deny what seems to be fundamentally obvious. Yeah. She takes, it can't be this, it can't be this, it can't be this. No, no, I swear to God, <laughs> it's a yeah. robot covered in, in human flesh from the future back to kill you because you're going to give birth to the savior of mankind. It's a hell of a thing to swallow for anybody to swallow, and she doesn't for most of the movie. And And you're right, like it doesn't. It doesn't follow the final girl formula mm-hmm. of here's a bunch of people we sort of care about who are all going to die until her. We don't care about anybody else in this movie, mm-hmm. really, except for Sarah Connor and Kyle Reese. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't care that much about her roommate, Ginger. We don't care that much about the roommate's boyfriend. We don't care about the rando Sarah Connors out of the phone book. Like it's it's all about those two people. Yeah. That's true. I am curious, when you saw this movie, um, who was Arnold Schwarzenegger to you? Was he anybody, like, to you in terms of your, like, pop culture or, you know, entertainment uh, consumption? He was he was Conan the Barbarian mm-hmm. to me. Like, I had already seen that. Um, but he wasn't... I mean, and even at the time, he wasn't much more than, like, muscle-bound. Right. Pumping iron, yeah, if like, you, and I'd never yeah. seen. I didn't see Pumping Iron until much later because you know that's that's like a real serious adulty movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and while this is rated R, I could get away with this, whereas Pumping Iron was. What's going on in this picture? 
Um, but yeah, there was there was no. I, I didn't come to this movie with any appreciation for him really as a movie star, mm-hmm. as a, as a presence beyond. I love Conan the Barbarian comic books, and this guy made a Conan movie, and it's kind of badass. So cool, but. You know, and I'm also like thinking of the the alternate castings that were going to yes. be for this movie. That at one point O.J. Simpson was right. going to be the Terminator. At one point, Arnold was reading for the Kyle Reese role. Mm. You know, and that and and I think they wanted Lance Henriksen to play the Terminator, mm-hmm. and he gets the the second banana lieutenant <laughs> <laughs> role as consolation yeah. prize. But like looking at all those various formulations, and it seems so obvious today. And yet it, none of it makes sense in a weird way for story purposes mm-hmm. in that, all right, so the Terminator's job is infiltration, right? Like he's supposed to be the person who just works his way in and insinuates himself into the, into the, the community and then does awful things once he's there. You don't not notice mm-hmm. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Right. Like he's a panzer tank. He's not, he's not infiltrating anything. Look at him. He can barely fit through a door. So it's like the movie almost betrays itself by casting, and yet you can't imagine anything but. It was funny in the nightclub scene, watching him sort of walk through all of like the clubbing people. Mm. That was when, that was the only time I really noticed it, was (laughs) here is this like giant man just lumbering through a club with all these people being like, yeah, this is great. There was one dude dancing in that sequence. He's and you, you'll watch it. It's the scene where where Sarah Connor knocks her soda bottle off the yes. table and she bends down and then the Terminator walks by and misses her. There's a dude in this super tight sleeveless T-shirt. He's kind of balding on top, too fat to be wearing a tight T-shirt. Who's having the time of his life and dancing like nobody's watching. It's unbelievably distracting <laughs> to see this dude just kind of like his thumbs are out. He's like, <laughs> Elaine Benison all over the screen. Just, <laughs> Yeah, we're having the. I don't hear the music, but it's fun. You should you should spend some time. I can't believe I did not notice that this time around. That guy I don't, is amazing. He's in his own movie. I, well, he <laughs> and he is the star of that movie. He's the hero which of his own great. story. Well, so and then um, I was curious. Uh, have you? Because um, you recently were going through some like showing the the '80s movies mm, to the to, to the to little the one. That's right. <laughs> have you shown him this one yet? Not yet. Not yet. I mean, we did we did his first rated R movie. Okay. Shaun of the Dead was his first rated R movie. It's a good one. It's not. It's it's pretty toothless yeah. as far as that sort of thing goes. There's a little bit of language, but I've just decided to ignore sure. the language because at some point one has to. Right. Um, but I think you know I, I'm debating when to get into the Schwarzenegger of it all. Mm-hmm. You know, because it it was so much of my kind of childhood. The Terminator and Predator and and even just like the camera of it all. Like I kind of want to show him Aliens. Yeah. Because I. I that is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I almost picked it for today, but Ooh. I figured, yeah, so close. <laughs> well, but that's, you know, it's funny because I think that, yeah, the Cameron of it all is really, really interesting. Um, this is a movie where I just, I don't know how you watch it and don't see bigger and greater mm-hmm. things. Well, you know, you're, it's very, and it is fun because it is tangible because you do have a small budget, meaning like, yeah, everything mm-hmm. is up on that screen, yeah. right? Um, but but you watch this and just some of the, just the creativity, like, I, I don't know why I was so taken by the concept of going to the phone book. Everybody goes <laughs> to the phone book and it's almost like this really 
duh kind of clue but I was like holy shit like that's actually very smart because at the time they're getting killed in the order of the phone book and like all three of them run to all these different I mean I don't know why I just was very like that's clever there's a lot of there's a lot of clever things (laughs) bless you Mm. there's a lot of clever things in the script but it's also you know in addition to like visuals (laughs) bless you okay shaking it off are you okay here we go do we need a break now we're good okay um but yeah, the Cameron of it all is really fun. And this is the start of him and Arnold and yeah. and, a, and a beautiful relationship. I know. And I think it's also interesting to look at Cameron's career and track the quality of the movie versus size of the budget. Yeah. Or even better, the complexity of the movie versus the size of the budget. Because Terminator, he's got $4 million to work with. And granted, you're talking 1983 money, so that goes a bit, but even still. And then you get... You know, you start ramping up. You get to Aliens. You get to to the Abyss. You get to Terminator Two. You get to True Lies, and then Titanic, and then you're off to the races. But watching how the scripts get more simple as the amount of money mm-hmm. he gets goes up, like it's it's as if his brain has but so much juice in it, and it's like I can either spend all of this creativity on making the script as tight as I can, or I can figure out technology that doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. I can invent you know, performance volume and capture and, and deal with, you know, blue kittens in space for five movies. And it feels like there's the, like the sweet spot of like, I mean, I, I hate to say true lies is the middle of that, but mm-hmm. maybe the abyss is kind of the, the, where the script is still really smart and there's still a lot of stuff going on in there. The character stuff is really tight, but the technology is also like he had the scale and the scope and the resources to play big to be like, I'm going to build this thing underwater and I'm going to make a giant tank and we're going to dive and we're going to do, you know, aquapods that nobody's seen before. We're going to, we're going to push the envelope in a way that, that Hollywood wasn't ready for and had never experienced, but still have a rock solid script. Mm-hmm. I mean, you look at the story for Avatar, it's super simple, mm-hmm. you know, and not that there's anything wrong with simple. I mean, Mad Max Free Road is the simplest movie I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. It's, hey, we're going to go to the store. Oh, they're out of the stuff we wanted. We're going to go back home. That's that movie. But mm-hmm. you you build enough ornaments on it. You build enough texture to that world that it becomes its own complex statement and its own very deep rumination on on the future of man and the, the, the patriarchy and rebellion and all that stuff. Avatar doesn't have a lot mm-hmm. of that complexity. It just has... Pocahontas. Mm-hmm. It just has, you know, we're ruining the new world and one guy decides to go native to stop it. And it's elemental and it works and that's you get to $2 billion at a box office. But I miss the Cameron who solved his problems on the page. I miss the Cameron who just went for big ideas mm-hmm. and, and heady character dynamics and, and stuff that was structured so well in letters before he ever gets to the stage. I miss that guy. Mm-hmm. I miss that guy who 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 knew what limitations felt like. Yeah. You know, like once you have everything, it's 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 harder. And maybe his limitations are literally what we can and cannot accomplish. Mm-hmm. And that's what he's pushing up against as opposed to I have no money to execute this. How do I tell this story in a way that I can do it? And that's where Terminator is phenomenally mm-hmm. successful. Well, and you know, if I like, you know, what about the talking about the Arnold Schwarzenegger of it all? Like I remember um 
when I finally came around to the Terminator, I was much older, but mm. my dad always loved Arnold. Mm. And um, so I grew up watching Predator for sure. My mm. dad loved Predator and he loved, um, and we would watch, you know, I was a kid. So like <laughs> Last Action Hero was mm. around my time. And um, I, I was never a Jingle All the Way kid. Come on. I mean, but you're, you're too cool for I, Jingle All the Way. I have some standards. <laughs> Let's, I do love me some Sinbad though. Uh, but, but I, you know, like this is, this is, I think, the first time that a lot of us really saw Arnold. But Arnold, like, looked... Th that's something that really stood out to me is his face. Like, he's not quite as baby face as he is mm. in Pumping Iron. Yeah. But he he is as broad. Like, he looks so different than he did in when he played another Terminator yeah. a decade later or several years later. Mm. It wasn't a full decade. But um, but I think that that's really... I don't know. It's like that he he's really good in this movie and it's an economy of words obviously mm -hmm. but it it doesn't ever feel like uh he's not a good actor so just don't give him any lines it <laughs> like he he really kind of i mean this was sort of really fun to go back and rewatch and be like oh yeah he's pretty good at this yeah like it's a very physical performance it's a, yes. it's it's all like looks and motion and economy of motion and you know, what would it feel like to be a robot in the world trying to pretend to be a human being? You know, like it's, and you can see the 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 hinks and the hitches and the the logic processing working. You know, like it's it's funny sometimes you look at somebody like Arnold and you say, I can see all the gears in your head doing its job. In this case, it totally makes sense mm -hmm. because he's, and then you see him, what he's processing and how he's learning and how he's adjusting to the mission at hand. Like he's, He's giving a performance, which I don't think anybody thought he could do. Yeah. And then it wouldn't be until, you know, I don't know, 88, I think, is Twins, 89, something mm -hmm. like that. When it's like, oh, he could be funny also. Like, he's got timing. Who knew that Arnold Schwarzenegger had timing? You know, and that's, you can draw the direct line from that to, you know, Momoa having timing. Yes. And The Rock having timing. Yes. And these giant actors suddenly being funny. And why are you funny? You have no right being funny. I don't want you to be funny. It's it's true. It's um it my, for us to be funny. <laughs> my favorite my favorite uh, story to tell is when I interviewed Paul Feig for Ghostbusters and brought up Chris Hemsworth, mm -hmm. and you know I was like, he's so funny in in this and everything. And Paul Feig said of Chris Hemsworth, yes, you know God rarely gives with both hands, <laughs> but you know here we are with Chris. Yeah. Um and and I but it is you. You know, it is kind of amazing when you are. It, it, it is, and he's he's an entertainer. He's a mm. movie star. That's the other thing that was fun. Is like you know, especially for us us you know industry nerds, mm. we talk a lot about like, oh, there are no movie stars anymore. If they are, it's there's there's five of them, and you can count them on one hand. But Arnold, you really do see the makings of a movie star in this role. Yeah, I mean, it it, it reminds me a little bit of like. When when actors like Ice Cube and Ice T yeah. and like rappers would begin to make that jump into into the screen, and people are like, well, why why does it work? It's because these guys have been working in a in a in a place in a medium that requires charisma. Yeah, it requires them to own a stage. It requires them to convey personality at the highest level in the shortest amount of time. Arnold was a bodybuilder. Mm -hmm. Like his job was to stand up on a stage and be the center of attention. When you do the pose down, and there's like nine other dudes there, all have been working for nine months out of the year in a gym, all glistening and rippling and whatever, to be the guy that people notice. 
there's something there. There's there's some. It might be innate. It might be something he learned. It might be something he worked really hard at. But he was the center of attention, and that's it's an unquantifiable thing mm-hmm. that makes a movie star. You know, you have to want to look at him. You have to hold that gaze, and it's it is no mean feat to be that person. Yeah. Totally. Um. I also okay. So. The the premise or the the only rules I gave you were that you had to pick something off of one of these lists, mm-hmm. right? So the this movie um, is on the thrills and chills list, um, and uh, but the quotes, right? I'll be back is mm-hmm. the number thirty seven like ranked quote <laughs> in movie quotes according to the American Film Institute. Mm. What's funny is I want and I just am curious for your thoughts. It's it might not seem like a big deal, but I was rewatching the movie and I was like, why is this the thing that stood out? <laughs> like, I could not, I, I really didn't even think about it because I was paying attention to the context of the line. Mm-hmm. And it's not like it's, you know, like the mother of the revolution or I traveled across time for yeah, you, Sarah. Come with me if you want to live. Exactly. It's like, it's just, it's honestly just a gag like it, it sets up a gag and I was like that is so weird it is the randomest of random things like that's the one that's stuck you know and and nobody ever knows nobody knows yeah. what's going to resonate no, with that's people true. you know like there's there's no story pressure on that line there's no like it's not even like a Bond throwaway, like, you it's, know. Like, it's not even a punchline. No. It's the setup to he's, the joke. The car crashing through is the punchline. He's just saying what he's going to do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What's he going to do? I'm going to be back. I'll be back. With a car. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's just so strange to me. Like, it's it, so weird. It's not even like make my day. Right. It's not even like do you feel lucky, punk. It's none of that stuff. It's just I'll, I'll be right back. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is. <laughs> it made me laugh a lot. Like I was, I was very, I was like, what the hell is this about? Yeah. Like who, who, I'm sure Cameron was like, you guys, listen, there's like five or six lines in this that we're going to put on t-shirts. Right. None of them would have been, I'll be back. No, absolutely (laughs) not. Not even, not in the least. So, all right. So now let's talk a little bit about, um, you get to choose your own movie. I get to add my thing. Yes. You get to add your own movie that I do not, uh, know what it is. No, it's a surprise. It's a surprise. So what, what are you adding to this list? I am going to, I'm going to submit for consideration Mm -hmm. from the Academy of One. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe this movie came out in 1999, directed by the first feature film, directed by Brad Bird, mm-hmm. uh, The Iron Giant. Oh! I love The Iron Giant. I saw this movie, I was at a screening, I was working for Entertainment Weekly, I was their resident nerd, and Warner Brothers didn't care about it. They dumped it, they, they, they dropped it in the middle of the year that nobody gave a crap about. And they were screening it, and I was like, well, all right, I'm the nerd, so I'll go, and so then I made a movie, and whatever. And I, by the end of that movie, like about halfway through, I'm like, this is kind of wonderful. This is like, it's really sweet. And, you know, the story about a boy named Hogarth Hughes who discovers in his in the woods behind his house that some robot has landed and the robot doesn't know who he is. So it's basically like a boy and his pet giant robot and shenanigans. And it's also in the shadow of... of sort of the nuclear race in the, in the 50s and fallout shelters and everybody's afraid of the bomb and... Could this be like, and Sputnik is in space and, and, and the red threat. And by the end of this movie, you know, you sit there watching it. It's like, you know what? They, if, they could go to like a kind of a dark place, but this, but they won't because it's a kid's animated movie. 
and it goes to a dark place. It goes to a the the pet that this guy that this poor kid has has glommed onto was a weapon, was a giant platform for for carnage, and he reverts to that natural state, and and awful things start to happen, and like there are tanks getting blown up, and missiles get fired, and and fighter jets are in the air, and people are dying, and I'm like, this is an animated movie set for kids. And then by the end of it, I'm crying my friggin' eyes out because it is the sweetest ending of a movie that I didn't expect. And I'm just in the screen room by myself bawling like an idiot. <laughs> I don't know what happened. Oh. I'm Iron Giant, he's Superman. <laughs> and I don't know, but it's right. He's like, what? These little pieces are coming back together again. And this is amazing. Like, it just, it, it, it wrecked me in a way that I didn't expect it to. And, like, that's how Brad Bird goes, goes to Pixar. That's how you get Ratatouille and the Incredibles, and that's how you get Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, and that's how you get Tomorrowland, but, you know, which I still kind of like, but whatever. But but it all starts there. It all starts with, with this incredibly sweet, like, unnecessarily mature film. And, yeah, I love it to death. I remember when that movie came out, and because I was, you know, of of animated age, mm. you know? And um, that wasn't one that my parents took me to. But I think I watched it once when I was a kid and didn't really pay attention to it. Mm. And that is the last that I have seen that movie. So I feel like mm. if I rewatch it again, it would be with fresh eyes, essentially. Yeah, like there's there's a lot going on in that movie. There's a lot about single parenthood. Mm-hmm. There's a lot about, you know, the life you, the inner life you got to have as a kid that is fundamentally gone today. The idea that you could just play in the woods mm-hmm. and that would be fine. The idea that you could just be yourself by yourself is a, is a thing that, you know, as a parent, I know that I don't quite indulge as much as I was indulged mm-hmm. when it's, all right, come back home when the streetlights turn on right. was all I heard from my parents. And then you could just go. Yeah. What are you going to do? Play basketball, ride bikes. You're going to go to the movies. You can do whatever. Go to the comic book store. Go to the record store. They didn't, not to say didn't care, but trusted you. You know, and trusted that, you know, they picked a relatively safe place for you to live and what kind of trouble are you going to get into? And if you do, there will be somebody to help you. Like, if you break a leg, then there will be an adult nearby who can call an ambulance. Like, but other than that, what's what's the worst that could happen? Yeah. What Did you pick this one because it's also a robot? Uh, I did not draw those two <laughs> connections, but it makes all the sense in the world now. But yeah, I was looking at the list and looking at what was already on there, and just it it just kind of popped in. It's a movie that I love, that I love dearly, um, and and I'm not gonna say it feels forgotten because it has got something of a second life. Like yeah. Warner Brothers gave it like a tenth or twentieth anniversary mm-hmm. release not long ago, um, and on video, it, it's it's always one of those steady performers, mm-hmm. maybe like the last of the steady video performers that right. somebody just everybody found that on video. And there was a time that that's the way it worked. Yes. Was that, you know, a movie like... Princess Bride. Princess Bride. That, that was found on... I mean, Labyrinth. Labyrinth, Spinal Tap. Yep. Like every, every movie that you love dearly, yep. nobody went to go see in Absolutely. The Absolutely. You know, it's something that somebody just found. Like, hey, dude, you should really watch this. What's this? Oh, man. You, you've never seen Tapeheads? Come on. <laughs> you've never seen Repo Man? What are you kidding? Like, those are movies that failed miserably in, in theaters. I mean, Terminator. Did not work right. in theaters. Like it, you know, whatever. It cost four, probably made like seven or eight, maybe ten. But its audience found it on video. And it's never gone away. Yeah. You know? And I feel like, you know, mid to late nineties was the last time you could do that. 
Can I, I so let's, I want to ask like, you know, because the, the, you know, I sort of obviously made the joke about the robots and, <laughs> and Iron Giant and the, and the Terminator, but there is something that is endlessly interesting and appealing, but very dangerous when it comes to artificial intelligence or mm. machines, however you want to say it. Like I noticed in, in the Terminator, for example, um, you know, the, her every time she talk about the machine, meaning like the voice, you know, mm-hmm. voicemail as we yeah. know it, or or even the readily available information of your name and address and phone number, like it, <laughs> that it was just so creepy. It is in the phone book, <laughs> so it was like it's like the original trolling essentially. Totally. The Terminator like, is the I original troll, live. exactly, <laughs> and the and the phone book is doxing, but um. I just am curious, like, what is it that you think, whether it is, honestly, in the in a movie like The Iron Giant, which, you know, um, shows the lovely side and the scary side, and same with the franchise. I mean, between Terminator and Terminator 2, you know, there is an argument to be made that in Terminator 2... Arnold's character is more human, right? Mm. Or emotional, not emotional, but you know what I mean, than right. Sarah is. I mean, what do you think about that? I mean, I think that... that- all three of these movies, in a way, are a weird argument for, I want to say gun control, but that's not quite right. Mm-hmm. But it's the idea that these things are tools. Yeah. And and whatever innate morality they have was imparted to them by somebody who made them. Mm-hmm. You know, like the Terminator is not evil. Skynet right. is the evil thing yeah. like and so if John Connor reprograms the Terminator suddenly like the thing that had been in the hands of the bad guys now in the hands of the good guys and it 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 is this weird sort of wonderful reminder that you know powerful things need to be in the hands of people who are responsible enough mm-hmm. to use them yeah you know and the Iron Giant as again, like he he has no morality. He has no like he feels innocent until you push the wrong button, until you you push it the wrong way, and its true nature reveals itself. But it could be it's independent of of internal thought. It's mm-hmm. independent of it's programmed to do something. And so much of that movie is about the Iron Giant, is about the AI and the Iron Giant mm-hmm. superseding its own programming and deciding to not be a gun even though that's what he was built to be. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I am not a gun is literally one of the last lines of dialogue that he has. And also, I am Superman, and that's when you cry. Mm-hmm. But um, I do feel like it's it's very much about the, the morality, the legality, the responsibility of technology, the responsibility of having the kind of power that these things have. Mm-hmm. You know, I was I was kind of struck by the, the scene in the first Terminator movie when when Arnold walks into the gun shop yes. and there's Dick Miller there. Yes. And he's just like, I'll take that. How about this? How about that? He's like, oh, we're closing early tonight. Any one of these is suitable for home defense. I'll take them all. The idea that, you know, you could just walk into a place and buy enough stuff to kill lots and lots and lots of people and... There was no, like, even in that store, there's no plexiglass between the guy, like, oh, I just sold this to a person, and now that thing kills me. Yep. You know, the responsibility of, of firearms, the responsibility of weapons, and it feels as if there's, there's a thread that connects all of those things, um, which I hadn't thought of before. 
but now no, but I you're think, totally right. But it's really interesting. And, you know, it's funny because speaking of the valley uh, <laughs> and speaking of, you know, all of this, I noticed um, I was driving down Magnolia, uh, Magnolia Boulevard here in, you know, North Hollywood, Burbank, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, California, especially Los Angeles, has such a rap for being so, you know, liberal and and all of these things. Um, and I noticed within two blocks on Magnolia, two gun shops. Mm. And I was like, huh. <laughs> one of them I had always seen, one of them I see because it's where it's placed on the street mm-hmm. and there's like, big neon signs that say guns. And I was like, ugh, what? And I just thought, like, and then I started going down the thought process of making a neon sign that says guns. And I was like, this is weird. Um, But then when I was driving home the other day, a smaller shop that has a smaller storefront, essentially, um, it was another one. And Mm. I was like, whoa, even here, like in, you know, quote fingers, liberal Los Angeles, California. Mm. Um, but but that scene in the, you're absolutely, it stood out to me too. The scene in the gun shop absolutely stood out to me too when yeah. I rewatched this movie. I mean, it's not long ago. I went, I'm going to say eh, two or three months ago, I went to the Los Angeles gun club. Oh, because I, I, it's been a forever, like it was a boy scout. So the last time I actually fired a firearm, it was like a stupid 22 caliber yeah. target rifle. But I'm like, listen, I write enough action. I write enough of this kind of mm-hmm. stuff in comic books and in TV and whatever that I've never actually fired uh, a, an automatic handgun. I've never fired a, a, a AR-15 mm-hmm. or whatever. Like I should... I should do that. Like I should, I should know what it feels like, so that when I decide to, you know, give somebody two guns and two hands and just have them waving willy nilly, totally. it's like, that's not the way it works. Like you can't actually do that and hit anything. And nor should you ever actually do that because it's bullshit. But, <laughs> and I was kind of struck by like I went to this, I went to this gun range and you know gave them my ID, which I don't think they ran through a computer. They took a thumbprint and that's all well and good. And they gave me a pistol and a rifle and ammunition and sent me to a little pen where it's like me and nine other people all firing downrange. And there was technically nothing to stop anybody from not firing downrange, mm-hmm. you know? And it, and it, it was so unnerving that this much power is in the hands of people for whom if, if they got as stringent of a security check as I did, all they did was photocopy your ID and, yeah. get, and take a thumbprint. Yeah. And I'm putting my lives in their hands and hoping that nobody here is nuts, you know, or that nobody here doesn't like a black dude or that nobody here is just like off their meds or whatever it is. You know, the responsibility of that, you know, like the the Terminator series is about responsibility. It's about like you created this thing and there's nobody to take responsibility for it. You built Skynet. Skynet Skynet built these things, and those things ensured the demise of mankind, and now there's nobody to take responsibility for it except for us, the survivors, and now what can we do? You know, and that responsibility weighs heavy, you know, in every every stitch of these movies. Mm -hmm. Like, it's, it's, it's the thing that drives everybody. It's Sarah Connor's responsibility for her unborn son, later her born son. It's Hal Reese's responsibility to go back and, and meet this woman mm-hmm. that he's been fighting for but never met and eventually, whether he knew it or not, give birth <laughs> to the salvation yeah. of mankind. Like it's, it's a saga about responsibility and I feel like when it wavers from that mm-hmm. is when it's not as good as we want it to be. Yeah. You know, like I don't mind 
Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines. Mm-hmm. It's not bad. It ends well. It mm-hmm. ends better than it starts, um, where the responsibility is, spoilers, not to end Judgment Day, but to just protect John Connor and the woman who will be his wife to give birth to whomever, whatever. Mm-hmm. And once you get into salvation, once you get into Genesis, you start to lose that thread of this is our fault. This is, this is right. we're, we're carrying the burden, the moral, the ethical burden of what we've done. And how do we, how do we rescue ourselves mm-hmm. from what we did? And, and, but that's, you know, the more you think about it, the more those movies are all about that, about responsibility. Well, and also, I mean, you know, it's it's like I think about. Um, so we talk about when we talk about the Second Amendment here in the U.S. Mm. Um, you know, the part that I think a lot of us forget is the well-regulated part, mm. the well-regulated militia, um, and you know, it is that I think translated to today, it is responsibility. It mm-hmm. is exactly what you were talking about, like. If you are going to trust entrust your citizens with technology, with weaponry, with whatever, the respond there is a responsibility that comes along with that. Yeah. And um and so, you know, I I think about um yeah, I mean when you think about the weapon the weaponry of it all and the responsibility of it all, it is it is pretty, yeah. you know. And AI that is, is the weaponry of the future. Absolutely. You know, information is is the gun of tomorrow. And who is bearing the responsibility for that? Who is deciding what should be done and shouldn't be done? Or are people just creating because they can? You know, like we talked about it over lunch once. The Nobody's paying attention to the Ian Malcolm yes. rule of they were so busy being preoccupied with whether they could, nobody stopped to think about whether they should. And, you know, this I it's this is a great way to close out because we're coming up on 2029. Mm. Um, it's 2017, <laughs> so we've got a couple more years, but it ain't long. Until Judgment Day. Until Judgment Day <laughs> and until Skynet. But, you know, it is kind of funny to think, you know, and and look, this is the fun part about science fiction movies and and tech movies that involve technology and the future mm-hmm. um, is you get to look at the ideas of the future and then fortunately or hopefully you get to live through those you know like <laughs> iconic dates and yeah. you're like oh you know or there's Back to the Future too or mm-hmm. or coming soon for for Judgment Day, <laughs> but it it's kind of it's kind of amazing how. I feel like in a lot of ways, the average person doesn't think about technology any differently than the average person in 1984, mm-hmm. right? Sarah Connor even says, like, well, they can't do that now. They can't put human flesh on a on a robot. And he's like, well, no, 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 this is from the future. But I I wonder, like, sometimes when when we learn about the the secret, te- not even not so secret technology mm-hmm. that exists now today, like, I wonder if people realize, like, no, they can do this now. They can do a lot of stuff now. Yeah. And it's not to say that it's not to say that that is inherently a bad thing. But I I I wonder, and this movie really made me think about it. Or a lot of these movies, science fiction films, make me think about it. Like. It's not even the should. It's the it's the okay. Well, if we're doing this, then let's really do it. Like mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying. Like uh, the idea that such drastic shifts and weaponry, whether you know, and using the term weapon is not. I don't mean it as a sinister, but mm-hmm. but like and not discussing the rest of it, not thinking it through. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. It's kind of amazing. 
I mean, I, I always think back to my, my grandfather was born in 1900. Wow. And, and he died when he was 96. So he basically mm. had the, the breath of a century. Wow. And when I think of the, the technological leaps that he was present for, yeah. they were massive, but they were spread out. Yes. It was like, all right, we got color TV. We got TV. We got color movies. We got power steering. We got CB radios. We got cellular telephones. We, like, I think the last thing that he was present for and engaged with was cable TV. Mm-hmm. You know? But there was, there was time to process what so many of those things meant. There was time to figure out what it means to have a connected country, to have a connected world, what it means to to be able to fly faster than you ever could before, to be able to get further than you ever could before, be able to go to the moon, mm-hmm. which he, by the way, never believed we went to, but that's <laughs> neither here nor there. But, but you know, to reckon with those massive technological shifts and to debate them and to sort of analyze them and figure out what they would mean for a populace and regulate them when they needed to be regulated, we are going so fast mm-hmm. and there is such a small period of time between these massive mm-hmm. shifts that you can't regulate or, or, yeah. or you know educate or, or even moralize with and, and reckon with, it's all happening so fast that it'll happen, <laughs> the thing that will happen will happen before we know it and then it'll be too late. Well, and it has to be a priority. Yeah. That's have, the other thing. <laughs> like that's, that's what I'm, yes, that I think is the biggest thing is like if it's not a priority to, you know, keep on top of all of this mm-hmm. amazing innovation and amazing technology um, that can be used for incredible good, then that's when we run into Skynet. Yes, totally. It's, it's when you realize that the minute you create a technology, the first thing that it's used for is not what you expected it to be used yes, for. Yes, <laughs> that is, that is. Like, you guys, we created this camera. We can, it's like a motion picture thing. What are we going to do? Porn. Yeah, totally. <laughs> because why wouldn't you? Because why not? But yeah, it's always realizing that that thing is going to be bastardized and, and best intentions are just that, yeah. not fundamental reality. And figuring out a way to, to think before the bad things happen. Mm-hmm. It's impossible, I know, but to not even try is kind of where we are. Yeah. <laughs> like, ah, it'll be fine. Well... On that note, what a great way to (laughs) to go out, to go out on a a positive note. Sure. I mean, if these movies are about anything, they're not about positive notes. Fair enough. (laughs) I cannot argue with that. Um, Well, Mark, thank you for talking about Terminator with me. This was super, super, super fun. And uh, thank you for braving the fearsome beastie that is allergies. uh, It's it's heartening to me to know that my immune system was able to hold up Barra couple of sneezes for the duration. And also, I live in an old building, so the sneezes, you know, yeah, just, that, just, yeah, exactly. Or ghosts. Well, and that. <laughs> I'm allergic to ghosts. I didn't mention the ghosts, I well, forgot. I but mean, you shouldn't if you ever have people come over. <laughs> yeah, that's why I didn't. <laughs> All right, my friend. Well, on the note of ghosts, mm. thank you. Au revoir. All 
Alrighty, friends, there you have it. The number 37 movie quote, the number 22 villain, and the number 42 movie on the AFI Thrills list. The Terminator. Did you enjoy that conversation as much as I did? It got deep, right? Very topical for a movie that came out in 1984. Uh, thanks, as always, to Mark Bernardin for, for uh, participating and for chatting with me and for braving the allergies of my little beastie dog, Rufus. Thank you to Sean Keller for composing the theme. Thank you to Folsom Keller for sound engineering. And thank you to you for listening. I love doing this show. I hope you love listening to it. Please, if you can, if you're still here, <laughs> do me a big favor. Please subscribe on your uh, platform of choice. And please rate and review the podcast because that helps other people find it. We definitely want to grow this show so that other people can catch it. And if you can, uh, head on over to Patreon, patreon.com slash Clark Wolf. Every Thursday, there is a mini episode that is exclusive to $5 and higher Patreon uh, contributors. And last week's um, mini episode with Rebecca McKendry is actually free at Patreon, so you can give it a listen. Um, it's one of my favorites. It's a great little sample of what the mini episodes are like. And if you can kick in some bucks, then that's awesome. But if not, that's fine too. I'm just happy you're here. Alrighty, friends, as they say, I'll be back. Bye. Thank you.